ancient region of our mammalian selves, and one to which we owe in no small measure our survival and triumphs. It is a material part of our pursuits, love, games, hunting and war, exploration, and it is a vibrant force to signal victory, proclaim a time to quicken, to draw together, to exult, to celebrate. Exuberance is ancient, material, and profound. The Greeks understood the mysterious power of the hidden side of things, wrote Louis Pasteur. They bequeathed to us one of the most beautiful words in our language, the word enthusiasm, antheos, a god within. The grandeur of human actions is measured by the inspiration from which they spring. Happy is he who bears a god within and who obeys it. Like many essential human traits, exuberance is teeming in some and not to be caught sight of in others. For a few, exuberance is in the blood, an irrepressible life force. It may ebb and flow, but the underlying capacity for joy is as much a part of the person as having green eyes or a long waist. For them, as the psalm promises, a full joy cometh in the morning. Not so for most others. Exuberance is a more occasional thing, something to be experienced only at splendid moments of love or attainment, or known in youth but lost with time. The non-exuberant lack fizz and risibility. They need to be lifted up on the enthusiasm of others, roused by dance or drug, impelled by music. They do not kindle of their own accord. Variation in temperament is necessary. Exuberance, indiscriminately apportioned, is anarchical. If all were a fizz, the world would be an exhausting and chaotic place, driven to incoherence by competing enthusiasms or becalmed by indifference to the day-to-day -day requirements of life. Our species, like most, is well served by a diversity of temperaments, a variety of energies and moods. Exuberance is a fermenting, pushing upward and forward force, but sometimes fixity is critical to survival. The joyous and the not-so need one another in order to survive. I believe that exuberance is incomparably more important than we acknowledge. If, as it has been claimed, enthusiasm finds the opportunities and energy makes the most of them, a mood of mind that yokes the two is formidable indeed. Exuberant people take in the world and act upon it differently than those who are less lively and less energetically engaged. They hold their ideas with passion and delight, and they act upon them with dispatch. Their love of life and of adventure is palpable. Exuberance is a peculiarly pleasurable state, and in that pleasure is power. Why should man want to fly at all, asked Charles Lindbergh. People often ask these questions, but what civilization was not founded on adventure, and how long could one exist without it? Some answer the attainment of knowledge. Some say wealth or power is sufficient cause. I believe the risks I take are justified by the sheer love of the life I lead. Man's exuberant spirit of adventure, Lindbergh argued elsewhere, is beyond his power to control. Our earliest records, he said, tell of biting the apple and baiting the dragon, regardless of hardship or of danger. And from this inner drive, perhaps, progress and civilization developed. We moved from land to sea, to air, to space, era on era, our aspirations rising. Psychologists, who in recent years have taken up the study of positive emotions, find that joy widens one's view of the world and expands imaginative thought. It activates. It makes both physical and intellectual exploration more likely. And it provides reward for problems solved or risks taken. Through its positive energies, it heals as well. 
One joy, the Chinese believe, scatters a hundred griefs, and certainly it can be an antidote to fatigue and discouragement. Into those set back by failure, joy transfuses hope. Exuberance is also, at its quick, contagious. As it spreads pell-mell throughout a group, exuberance excites, it delights, and it dispels tension. It alerts the group to change and possibility. Ted Turner, who would know, believes a leader is someone with the ability to create infectious enthusiasm. This is a defining quality of great teachers, statesmen, and adventurers. Put well to use, infectious enthusiasm is a wonderful thing. Used badly, it is calamitous. Mostly, exuberance is a bounty and a blessing. It has its dangers, and we shall examine them in depth. But it is, all told, an amazing thing. Amazing and, on occasion, transfiguring. This was indisputably the case in May 1903, when two bounding enthusiasts hiked together in the Yosemite. One was the President of the United States, the other a Scottish celebrant of the American wilderness. They were both, by temperament, utterly incapable of being indifferent. Life, for Theodore Roosevelt, said one friend, was the unpacking of endless Christmas stockings. This would have gotten no argument from Roosevelt, a man who well into his fifties delighted in Christmas as an occasion of literally delirious joy, and who believed that the entirety of life was a great adventure. The man who knows great enthusiasms, he held, lays claim to the high triumphs of life. Born in 1858 into one of New York City's wealthiest families, Theodore Roosevelt seems to have burst into the world a full-throated exuberant. For this, he owed a considerable debt to his father. I never knew anyone who got greater joy out of living than did my father, he wrote, and the seasons of his childhood, so beholden to his father's love and enthusiasms, went by in a round of uninterrupted and enthralling pleasures. From his earliest days, he exulted in life. At the age of ten, he wrote to his mother with breathless enthusiasm, What an excitement to have received your letter. My mouth opened wide with astonishment when I heard how many flowers were sent in to you. I could revel in the buggy ones. I jumped with delight when I found you heard the mockingbird. Roosevelt, years later, was still jumping. One debutante said he did not so much dance as hop. Another recounted his unquenchable gaiety and his unerring ability at formal dinner parties to send her into such uncontrollable fits of laughter that she had no choice but to leave the table. His Harvard classmates depicted him as a fast-moving, rapid-talking enthusiast who often wore them out with his boisterous exuberance. He held his far-flung interests with ferocity and stoked his college rooms with piles of books, a large tortoise, sundry snakes, and a collection of lobsters. He zoomed, he bolted, he boomed and gesticulated wildly as he went. Roosevelt's vivacity receded when his father died. He felt, he said, as though I should almost perish. It was a devastating loss. For the rest of his life he would miss, though himself incorporate, his father's rare mixture of infectious joy and keen sense of public duty. Sometimes, when I fully realize my loss, he wrote in his diary a few months after his father's death, I feel as if I should go mad. Stoked by a restless energy not uncommon in those with exuberant temperaments, Roosevelt drove his desolation into action. He rode, hiked, hunted, boxed, and swam furiously during the fevered weeks following his father's death. 
With slight cause other than annoyance, he impetuously shot and killed a neighbor's dog. He nearly drove his horse into the ground through reckless gallops in the Oyster Bay countryside, and was no easier on himself. He'll kill himself before he'll even say he's tired, remarked one doctor of Roosevelt's frenetic behavior. Yet through it all there remained an irrepressible sense of life. I am of a very buoyant temper, he wrote his sister, not long after their father died. It was a temper that would serve him well and ill, but mostly well. In the years immediately following his father's death, Roosevelt fell passionately in love, married, graduated from law school, and published the first of the nearly forty books he would go on to write. In 1881 he was elected to the New York State Assembly, where, as he put it, he rose like a rocket. An ardent reformer, and lustily so throughout his political life, he became a mercurial, unstoppable irritant to his fellow Republicans. Roosevelt's life in politics was abruptly broken when, on St. Valentine's Day of 1884, both his wife and his mother died. You could not talk to him about it, said a close friend. He drew a cross in his diary for the date of the 14th of February and wrote, The light has gone out of my life. In a pitch of energy reminiscent of the period following his father's death, Roosevelt abruptly took off for the Dakota Badlands, where he lived out his conviction that black care rarely sits behind a rider whose pace is fast enough. He hunted, wrote an improbable number of books, and ran a cattle ranch. The hard work ultimately made wide inroads into his grief. We felt the beat of hearty life in our veins, he wrote later in his autobiography, and ours was the glory of work and the joy of living. Despite his distress, he said, I enjoyed life to the full. He returned to the East.